Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 1st, 2015. This is episode 1569 of the Survival Podcast. And you know what day it is? It's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. It's Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for your calls to the Think Line. 866-65-THINK. 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. One more time. All numbers. 866-658-4465. You call that number, leave me a message, and you might hear yourself on the air. The number of calls I'm going to probably be doing each week is probably going to drop down somewhere between five and seven at most. Because I have a new program that I'm starting today that I'm totally jazzed about. Um, if you usually skip the intro, listen to this, especially if you're one that likes to ask questions to the expert council. Here's what I decided. The expert council members were not getting enough questions. And sometimes it was my fault because I wasn't digging through the calls as, as religiously as I should. And sometimes it was just like, you don't really know Brian Black from ITS Tactical is on the council if you're new to the show and haven't heard him before. Or you don't know about Darby Simpson or Chef Keith Snow. And it seemed like Keith Snow got a lot of questions and Stephen Harris got a lot of questions and everybody else would get one that would trickle in a time or two. And then sometimes people would call and ask a question for a council member and the call would sound like this. Jack, I was calling a qu for uh, glance, truck. No, Well, I can't use that one. So this is my new program that I'm very jazzed about and excited about today. Every Friday, I will send an email to the active council members with a question in text, one or two sentences, and then they will record an answer to it and send it to me by week's end if they want to be on the air for that question that week. And that way I can get five, six, or today seven council members on the show on a regular basis with all different, diverse, and varied things. Now this week it was mostly questions that I created for them. So this is how I want you to ask questions for the expert council from now on. Just send me an email that says TSP expert question in the subject line, and then your question who that it's for. I won't use them all, but I will get and I will I'll take them and I'll build a database and start sending questions to the expert council. This is going to make it very simple for them. It's going to make it a very clear, defined question. And it'll help. I can kind of filter and steer the questions a little bit. And maybe I can expand the council even more. So, um, and I just realized I did something really stupid this week. I left, I think I left John Pugliano off the list. Either that or he didn't respond to me. I'll have to check the email when I'm doing the show today. But uh, John Pugliano, man, if I left you off, dude, I'm sorry. If you didn't get your answer to me, it's your fault. Anyway, um, so that's going to be how the council goes from now on, and I think it'll go better. And with it working that way, I'm even going to reach out to Jeff Lawton and see if he'd be interested in being on the council because I've hesitated to do that because of how busy the guy is, how much travel he has, etc. But if I can make it lickety-split simple, uh, I think we'll get better participation from our council members. Today's show is going to blow you away. Strap in, get ready for it. But before we do, let us take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors are awesome, awesome people. And they help you complete the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. The weapon, the ammo, and you, the operator, are the linchpin at the top of the triangle. You're what makes it function. Gun, buy it. 
clean it, load it, put it in your pocket, put it in a holster, put it in your nightstand, lock it in a safe, put it on the shelf, whatever. It is what it is. It does what it does. It will function. It's been made to function that way. The ammo that goes in it, you buy quality ammo, you pull the trigger, bang, it goes off. Done. No problem. No problem. However, that's not, that's not the way it works with you. You have a heart. You have a brain. You have stress hormones. You have limitations, physical limitations. In any situation where you're called on to use deadly force or called on to think about using deadly force and knowing when and when not to, training is key. The kind of training you'll get with Fortress Defense Consultants from Frank Sharp Jr. Check out his website today, FortressDefense.com. Next up today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Come on down. I don't know why I'm in such a weird mood today. Anyway, Jeff is awesome, man, and he is the Berkey Guy. So you know you can get Berkey's and Berkey water filtration systems and all your parts and service for your Berkey's from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. And that's what you should do. If you have a Berkey and you need filters, get them from Jeff. If you don't have a Berkey and you want one, Get it from Jeff. Why would you go to the non-Berkey guy when you can go to the Berkey guy himself, Jeff Gleason, who's been supporting our show for almost six years now? Great guy, maniac at customer service, awesome, awesome dude. Check him out today. His website, directive21.com, directive21.com. Next up the year, 1569, I have Mercator projections made perfect for nautical navigation and good God, the St. Paul Lottery. I'm going to read that one. Because there's stuff in here I had no idea about. It's all for the public good, says Queen Elizabeth I, as England's first lottery sells up to 400,000 tickets. It's held at St. Paul's Cathedral, and the Queen offers fine china and cash prizes. This is an experiment in raising money for the general fund and certain pet projects. It is advised as being for the public good. It's probably doing someone some good. During the American Revolution, Benjamin Franklin will use the lottery for financing the purchase of cannons. The first public lotteries began in the Netherlands, so England's word, English word lottery comes from the Dutch word meaning fate. I didn't know any of that. Next up, Alex Shrug's take. Lots of stuff I didn't know anything on. My take by Alex Shrug. Least anyone think that Christians have cornered the market on gambling. The Jewish holiday of Hanukkah uses gambling directly. The dreidel is a spinning top with four sides. You put money in the pot, spin the top, and depending on how it falls, you collect the money and put more in. Why gamble? In 175 BCE, the study of the Bible was outlawed by the Greek king. Nevertheless, Jews continued to study the Bible, but they would put out a gambling top and money. So that if authorities broke down the door, they would think that the Jews were gambling. Gambling was okay, but studying the Bible was not. After the Greek king was thrown out of Israel, part of the re remembering the holidays of light candles and play that little gambling top. I knew all about the dreidel. I didn't know it was actually for gambling. I didn't, didn't have any idea, so I thought that was really interesting. Here's my take on this. Um, I find it amusing when people say, lotteries are taxes on the poor. No, you know what a lottery is when run by the state? It is what's called a voluntary tax. No one forces you to play the lottery. People choose to play the lottery... And frankly, as long as your odds are in the lottery, you're probably more likely to get what you want out of it than you are from government on a daily basis. That's my take by Jack Spierko. Remember, you can hear all these cool factoids and get all these different things from the years of history at tspwiki.com, the survival, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, permaculture, ecological living, and historical wiki built by the TSP community. 
Again, at tspwiki.com. And these history segments are brought to you by Alex Shrugged, our number one contributor at the Wiki. Uh, I don't talk about the Wiki too much other than the history segments. Guys, if you check out the Wiki, it is an encyclopedia of all things self-sufficiency, self-reliant, and sustainable. And it is a factory of knowledge, and we invite you to participate. If you just go to tspwiki.com, you can see how to get started. We even have videos there, so if you're like, I don't know how to edit a wiki, sure you do. Just watch the video, and then you'll know. Learn a new skill, even a tech one. All right, next up, real quick, hey, join the MSB. That's all today for that. If you want to know more about what the MSB is, go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members. I do have an announcement for a new um, discounter. Hawk Ammo, H-A-W-K, Ammo.com, is a new MSB supporter. I've yet to announce it on the website, but they are in the MSB. They're doing 7% all of the, off all their precision custom-loaded ammunition. Really high-quality stuff. Check them out. Again, HawkAmmo.com. And if you're a member, click on Benefits when you're in your MSB, and you'll see them right at the top listed as a new MSB discounter. So that's three Jacks brought you in the last nine days, new discounters to the MSB. I also made an update yesterday to the JM Bullion policy. Some people were being not good boys and girls with the JM Bullion discount and splitting their orders up just to get more discounts, and we had to reformulate that discount formula. So you can still get a discount on your silver and gold from JM Bullion, but we have a little, new little modification to the rules and new codes as well. Uh, anybody breaking the rules will be not only have their orders canceled, but if Jam tells me about it, I'll throw you out of the MSB. I'll really do it. Don't test me. Uh, <laughs> next up today, um, I want to get into your calls, and I want to get into the, the feedback with the uh, expert council members, but I also need to give you an announcement that kind of snuck up on me. In my head, this was next week, not next week. What do I mean by that? It was the week after next in my head. And then coming into this week, I realized it's this week. I am going on Sunday to Gum Springs, Arkansas. Where's Gum Springs, you ask? It's almost to Little Rock and south of, uh, of Hot Springs, where I used to live. And Alcoa is there. And we are doing the first phase of a 1,200-acre project uh, for sustainable agriculture, uh, permaculture-style stuff with their Ed Center and a, a lot of other really great stuff. I'm doing that project in conjunction with Mark Shepard. I will be on site Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. That means there will be no show Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. But I'm going to try to make it up to you today. I'm also going to try. I'm going to try. I got a lot to do before I get out of here, guys. I am going to try to do a Duck Chronicles episode for you, and maybe record something on the road. Maybe not a real podcast, not an official episode, because those are too complicated anymore. But maybe just like a gorilla podcast. Uh, we did. We've done those before. It might be fun. Uh, but plan on listening to reruns next week. And remember, if you don't know what you want to listen to, we have a search box. We have a tag cloud, and we have a random episode link. You go to the Survival Podcast, click on, listen to a random episode, and it'll just pull up a random post. It might pull up an announcement or something that doesn't have a podcast. If it does, just click it again, and uh, you can just start browsing random episodes till you find something that tickles your fancy. Okay, with that, let's get into your feedback, and I want to go ahead and take your first call of the day. Again, we're going to hear from seven expert council members today. I really hope you enjoy today's show. I hope you enjoy the effort that I've put into bringing you more variety, more diversity, and more people uh, with their great thoughts, insights, and opinions. And uh, here we go. Here's your first call of the day. Hi, Jack. This is Richard in Austin. Question. We recently played. 50-acre East Texas property, and on my second walk to the property, I discovered that it had a 41-year-old pipeline going across it. 
It wasn't in the disclosure. So, do we walk? It's active, carrying gasoline, jet fuel, and diesel in it. Details. We contracted on the house, but nowhere in the disclosure notice was there anything about the pipeline easement, and honestly, it wasn't very noticeable from Google Earth. So we're wanting to set up a permaculture production farm on this property, and we just don't think that this is conducive to the activity. We worry about uh, the retail value the most. This property has been on the market for a long time, and we're noticing that most properties in the area that have been on the market for a long time have either a chicken house next door or a pipeline on the property. We don't want uh, to be the people holding the hot potato that nobody else wants, and we do realize that the odds of something bad happening are pretty slim, but this is just one factor we not really want to deal with, I don't think. So what do you think, Jack? Anyway, you've changed my life. Thanks for all you do. I've been listening to you for almost 1,200 episodes. Have a great day. All right, so a pipeline going through the property doesn't have the permaculture feel, but I'd like you to think about a few things. One, permaculture wasn't put in place to take over all the perfect arable farmland and change it into permaculture. That was not the original intent. I like would like to do that long term, but the whole point to permaculture was we can take all this land that people aren't doing anything with, that is considered not good enough for farming, not good enough for ranching, and we can actually make it more fertile than the lands that they call arable lands that they're doing all the farming and ranching on right now. And if you read Permaculture 1, which was the first book really on this, and if you actually read kind of some of the inspiration, such as Masanobu Fukuoka's uh, One Straw Revolution, and, and, and Fukuoka was a real inspiration to Bill Mollison. And you, you read that, you see that, you know, that's exactly what, was done in Japan with Fukuoka. That's exactly what the intention of permaculture was, and it's what many of us have done. So you're already in a position where we're designed to fix things. And, and I just mentioned I'm going to Alcoa, Alcoa Aluminum, and I'm going to help them plant chestnut trees and pecan trees and elderberries and aronias and put in a bunch of earthworks and develop a research uh, establishment. Well, there's giant high wires there that I'm not real thrilled about. And the business that Alcoa is in isn't exactly a clean and green business, but there's 1,200 acres of land there that can be transformed. So I don't think we should have a stigma about things like that. On the, the Permaethos farm at Elijah Spring, in West Virginia, there's oil wells. They've been there for 80 years or something like that. I don't know. It's been a long time. Um, you know, when Kevin and Charlie bought that, were they overjoyed that there's oil wells on the property? No, but, man, there's still so much potential and opportunity there. So I don't know that I would shy away because of any stigma or anything like that. A pipe is a pipe. It's a metal tube that the stuff goes through, and uh, the people that have it are required to maintain it. And if you do your job of keeping an eye on things, generally it's not a problem. They 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 have no greater interest in that stuff leaking out than you do. Um, and and despite the theatrics around it, pipelines have proven to be pretty daggone safe ways to move uh, petroleum products and other things. And while we've had you know deep water drilling wells blow up and flood the ocean and uh we've had you know ships run aground and flood the ocean with oil etc we haven't had any really catastrophic 
environmental damage from pipelines. I'm not saying there's none. I'm just saying compared to the Valdez, compared to uh, the Deepwater explosion a few years ago in the Gulf, uh, relatively easy to fix when it happens. And generally, landowners are compensated. So there's risk associated with that kind of a failure, but there's a risk that tomorrow you could walk out your door and a giant meteor could fly down out of the air and hit you in the face and kill you. So we can't live our lives completely risk-adverse. However, let me say a couple things here. Not disclosed by the seller. Wrong answer, Alex. I'm sorry you don't get to not disclose something like that. That's pretty big, and it it does give you the ability to walk the deal. You can walk away, and they can't keep your you know your 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 good faith money or anything like that holds you because they failed to disclose something that is really really important. So if you want out of the deal, I would say get out of the deal. Use this if that's what you want. If it's for the reasons you said or if there's starting to be like some, I'm not really sure that I want to do this or what have you, yeah. Um, at a minimum, I would go back to them and say, you know what, when we made the offer, when we tendered the offer on this property, the number that we put in was contingent upon an honest disclosure, which you didn't give us, and we'd like to renegotiate the price to see if you could save some money. And you can always say that's not low enough and still walk the deal. So I would see like, If it's been on the market that long and property's not selling in the area very well and uh, they need to sell the property, maybe you can shake them down for a little bit more money. And generally, I'm not a guy that shakes people down pretty hard in a deal. But when you don't tell me something like that, what do you think, I'm not going to find out? <laughs> uh, gloves are off, baby. So I would, I would seriously consider that. And then I would just, you design your property with the con concept and understanding that that element is there. That means there's going to have to be access for the pipeline people so that they can perform inspections and checks and maintenance and stuff like that. And you have to really do it this way. Instead of saying, well, it's a pipeline, I don't want it, or maybe I won't be able to sell it in a resale value. You definitely, if you're going to have a problem with resale value, don't buy it anyway. Okay. You shouldn't go into a real estate deal without an exit strategy. So make sure the exit strategy is solid. That can be done partially with negotiations. But you should now look at the property anew. If we, if we were handed this property, if, uh, if God just picked us up and said, this shall be thy property, and you ended up there, and thou shall own to thy fence post this way and thy oak tree that way, and, and it was your property, and, and that's what you had, and that's what you got, how would you design it? And if you're pleased with how that results, that little mental thought experiment results, and you say, we can live with this, then I would buy the property. I would not buy, I mean, maybe you're getting a great deal on the property because the pipeline's there. Um, if you, after you did that thought experiment, said, I'd be like, dude, can I please go somewhere else? Please don't make me make this the Garden of Eden then I would probably decide that I didn't want the property and go somewhere else. But either way, you have a complete and compelling case to walk the deal if you don't want the property. Those are my thoughts. Let's uh, let's take one for the expert counsel here. So my, my first uh, question for an expert counsel member is for Ben Falk. Uh, ben, what I'd like you to talk to us about this week is a so-called invasive species, uh, autumn olive. What are your thoughts on this plant and its values as food, medicine, and land fertility? 
Have you personally found it to be invasive on your land? How do you use the fruit of this plant at your homestead? I hear this plant villainized by a lot of people, and uh, we find it to be a great plant that grows very well here in Texas. It grows very well in West Virginia, and I know you have it on your property, and I remember seeing a photo of you. Uh, it was a really cool photo. In fact, Ben, if you can get this picture to me sometime, I'd, I'd like to be able to use this picture. And it's you picking stuff, and then the sun's setting, and it's kind of darked out and silhouetted, and it says, Hi, I'm Autumn Olive, and I'm as native as you. Uh, so I know you know a lot about Autumn Olive, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on how this plant's working out for you on your uh, permaculture farmstead in Vermont. Autumn Olive is one of our best plants here. Um, people often ask about it being invasive or a problem. Um, I've planted a handful over the years here, and I've never seen even the start of any other plant start um, on site. I, I wish... These plants would plant themselves, as many people are afraid of, uh, but they don't here. I know further south of us, they do. They can get um, much more dispersive. Um, I'm told that by various people that the birds disperse them and that the nutrition content is negligible or non-existent for the birds. Um, I guess I believe the former, but I don't believe the latter. Um, they're incredibly nutritious berries. I don't know why birds wouldn't make use of their nutrition as well, but I know that's just a common thing that a native plant fundamentalists often say about certain dispersive plants is that they, their nutritional content is non-existent. Um, I think, you know, if one looked into that deeply, they could um, probably refute that pretty easily. The, the nutrition for humans we do know more about um, has more than 10 times the lycopene, which is an essential amino acid, than tomato, which is often cited as you should eat tomatoes or even worse, eat ketchup to get your essential amino acid that you need. Uh, that's obviously crazy, but autumn olive is something you can eat in small quantity to get those essential amino acids more than 10 times than what's in tomato. Um, they grow really easily. They don't like wet sites. We have them up on mounds in a few wet areas. They'll take terrible soil. They're one of the few nitrogen-fixing fruits that we can grow, at least in the cold climate here. Um, and they get pretty big pretty quickly, um, like any other pioneer nitrogen fixer for the most part. Um, and, yeah, I haven't seen any issues, any negatives from having them. And I, I only wish I had planted more, which I'm doing. Uh, in the last few years, now that I've gotten to eat them over the last handful of years and, and see how they do, they're virtually pest-free. Um, uh, and in reading a little bit about them, I see there's a few pests, but like most um, pioneer plants that grow fast and are in abused and abandoned locations, they um, are very much uh, pest-free or resistant, unlike cultivated plants. Surprisingly, propagating them... Um, is not as easy as with some plants. We found it easier to propagate seaberry and quite a number of other plants. I've tried cuttings. I've heard root cuttings might work, but I haven't tried that. I've just tried tip cuttings. I don't think layering works too well. From seed is supposed to work very well, but I haven't tried that. Um, and as far as how we use the autumn olive, we eat them fresh mostly. We don't really put them in jams and jellies, although I know some people who do. Um, I don't think we've tried to dry them. I think they actually, no, we have dried them. We've dried gumi, which is a related, very closely related plant. Um, it's also an Eliagnus species and that's dried. Well, it's kind of interesting to eat. It's not, it's not a, I think uh, going to be a favorite as a dried fruit, but it's good. It holds up 
and um, it's a nice way of preserving nutrients, that's for sure. Um, but we mostly eat them fresh and then freeze them and put them in juices. Um, for the most part, it's not a fruit. We store a lot of like elderberry and seaberry. The elderberry and seaberry is what gets us through the winter. We don't really see the need of, of storing any other fruit for the most part. Thanks a lot. Hi, Jack. This is Rob from up in northern area, Wisconsin. Uh, I've got a question regarding eradicating tent caterpillars from apple trees. We've got a property we just purchased, and the original owner has two beautiful, well-producing apple trees, but every year they get ransacked by tent caterpillars. So he said he's tried everything. I don't want to do anything non-organic, but I would love to get rid of these because I guess they tear the apples just completely apart. So um, I saw it last year during his harvest time with these trees, and, yeah, the caterpillars pretty much ate them alive. So if you've got any ideas, I'd be completely open to trying them out. Thanks for everything you do. Bye. Tent caterpillars, hey. Well, I'll start out with what my grandmother used to do. Um See, the thing about these guys is they all go back to the nest after they gorge themselves eating the pretty leaves of your tree. So if you wait till the end of the day, they're all in there. Now, what Grandma would do, I'm not saying it's what you should do, but it's what Grandma used to do. She would get a long pole and wrap a rag around it with a little bit of kerosene on that rag, and she would light that rag on fire. And she would very carefully, and you do this when the tree's well-leafed out and green, hold the flame and kind of move it around and burn them. Um, she was pretty good at it. She, From what I could see, she did very little damage to the tree. Uh, my memory of this is pretty old, and I was pretty young, and I was never permitted to try it, though you can bet. You know, that a 10-year-old would like to have a 12-foot-long pole with fire on the end of it, but they were wise enough not to let me do it. So I don't have any experience doing that. What, what I started doing as I got older and became responsible for some of this stuff was noticing that most of the time they would be out on a limb, and they were bad in our black walnut trees. And I just would wait for them to go in there, and I'd go out with an extension pruner and maybe a stepladder, And I would just prune the whole end of the branch off. And then I'd pitch that in our burner that we burnt our uh, our paper in. So we didn't throw paper to the garbage. We had a old five gallon, 55-gallon drum that anything was burnable. Instead of sending it down to the dump, we burned it. And I didn't really know about composting paper or anything like that back then. And, um, and, and that worked pretty well. It certainly kept them under control. So one form or another of mechanical removal is probably going to be your best bet, especially with just a couple trees that you're worried about protecting. They generally don't do enough damage to kill a tree, and in general they don't do enough damage to seriously affect the yield from the tree if you're having that problem because they're defoliating it enough that it can't make enough energy to produce fruit, then you need to take some level of control. Um, a long pole with something on it that would kind of catch and then just kind of twisting it like cotton candy, most of them will end up in there. Again, you want to wait. You look at the nest, and when it's full of them, when they've all gone in there, that's when you want to mechanically remove them. So if they're on the end of a branch that's not really important, it can be pruned off, take the whole thing away. The, the problem with that thing is sometimes they get in like a, um, in the, the heart of the tree in like a V. And when they're in there... It's a lot harder to deal with them because they, you can't prune that out. You have to, you know, go in there and physically remove them. And I guess that's why my grandmother was so big on 
the, the kerosene stick method. Uh, the other control, which is a, an approved organic means of control and is very effective if done early in the year, and it may still be early enough in the year, it has to be done when these things are juveniles, is getting a BT spray and spraying them on contact with BT, spraying actually the leaves around their nest. Uh, BT is bathyllosomiasis, and it is a bacterium that is completely harmful to people. It is completely harmful, completely harmless to people. Uh, not that I would probably ingest large quantities of it, but it, it doesn't really hurt people. Uh, it's the same thing that's in mosquito dunks, the little little floating cakes that you put in standing water if you have to deal with mosquitoes, and it's deadly on them. It kills them dead. Uh, but yet, you can throw it in a fish pond, and it doesn't kill your fish. It doesn't kill water striders. It only seems to kill just about anything it kills is something we'd want dead anyway. So what you do is you spray the tree with this stuff, and it doesn't taste like anything. It doesn't smell like anything. It doesn't do anything except hey, you're basically inoculating the leaves with this bacteria. Think of it like inoculating the soil with fungi. And then your little caterpillar goes along, and he eats that. And that little virus or a little bacteria in there goes into his little belly and kills his little caterpillar ass. Now, the problem is the bigger that caterpillar gets, the more resilient he becomes, the less effective this is. So this really needs to be applied early in the season. Again, it's not harmful. I wouldn't breathe in the mist of it just because that's dumb. But it's not like you need to suit up and put a respirator on and go out there and spray some kind of toxins. Um, and I, I bet that would be highly effective for you. You just simply need a BT product. Uh, don't let that kind of scare you because I know they have BT corn and they actually grow corn that produces its own BT. And that's a totally different animal. It has a totally different problem that it creates. You're spraying BT on a couple of apple trees. The problem we get with BT resistance is when we take and we spray or we, we use BT as a GMO uh, on 800,000 acres of corn at a shot. And there's that many worms that many times. You're going to get resistant worms. You're not going to get 100%. Eradication uh, with BT. If you sprayed it every day for the next two weeks, you're not going to get 100% eradication. What you're going to do is you're going to make them sick and not so happy, and some of them are going to die, and some are going to be okay, and some of them aren't, and there's still going to be enough that predators are going to be interested in them and what have you. Um, I've never fed them to chickens, but if you have chickens, I think they'll probably eat them. If you're on an end of a branch, we can prune the end off and toss that in the chicken coop, that'd be a little function stacking there. And BT won't hurt your chickens either. Um, if it wasn't safe, I wouldn't use it. And uh, people always ask about mosquitoes in the swales. And uh, to the point where I'm just done answering that question because the swales usually hold water for three to four days. And by then the mosquitoes have found it. They've laid their eggs. They have all their little wiggles in there. And then it drains. And then the sun bakes their little asses to death. And it becomes a mosquito trap rather than a mosquito factory. Uh, but This last rain event was stupid crazy, two and a half inches in one day, followed by more, followed by more, followed by more. So the swells have been full for about seven days now. So they're highly populated with little wiggling 80s Egypti who are in there right now having their guts eaten out by BT because I threw BT dunks in there and they, it, it starts killing them in, in a day. Um, so if you ever have standing water, don't be afraid to use the BT dunks. And if you have w almost any worm-type pest, any kind of caterpillar-type pest, is susceptible to BT as well. Uh, don't be afraid to use it. Don't overuse it. Don't use it all the time. Only use it when you need to. But if they are defoliating these trees, wipe them out. <laughs>
Anyway, with that, let's uh, now take another question for an expert council member. This question is actually a question for me, myself, and I. I have a question for Darby Simpson of Simpson Family Farms, who's uh, an expert on pastured poultry and pastured pork. Uh, Darby, this year I am raising some turkeys free-range, broad-breasted bronze turkeys. And uh, my understanding is they can get very large, very fast. 22 weeks, they can get up to 35, 36 pounds. Mine may not get quite that big because they're being raised free-range, but they can still get very large. Here's my question. Uh, number one, about what is the right age to slaughter them? Do I want to let them get that big? Is there any adverse uh, effect on the quality of the meat if you let them get to full size? Or is there you know, any reason to not let them go much longer than that Do, You know, with this breed? Will they have any kind of problems? It doesn't seem like they will. Uh, and then what is the expected yield of a turkey carcass? So if I let a bird go to 30 pounds, what am I looking at when I'm done gutting it and plucking it and all? Or if I let it go to 32, 33 pounds, what am I looking at if I have a hen that's 20? So I'm very familiar with chickens, just not so much with turkey. So what's up, Darby? What do I do with these birds when it's time for them to graduate? I've named them Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Hey, Jack, this is Darby Simpson calling in to talk a little turkey with you. I'm excited to hear that you're raising a few turkeys uh, on your homestead there this year. I uh, tell you what, there is absolutely nothing with a bigger wow factor in terms of flavor that we raise here on our farm than our uh, our turkeys that we raise for Thanksgiving each year. I think the broad-breasted bronze is a uh, a great uh, tweener variety for homesteaders. Uh, it's kind of a, a faster-growing heritage breed, and everything I've heard about them sounds great. Um, since you're uh, you're free-ranging. The the, uh, the birds with your ducks there, uh, they're probably going to be doing quite a bit of foraging. And while it's true that they can get up to 35 pounds at 22 to 24 weeks of age, uh, that's typically what you're going to see in terms of live weight from uh, birds that are on uh, more of a conventional uh, feeding program, kind of like we do here. Um, if they're free-ranging, uh, a bit more, it might take them a little longer to get up to that weight, <clears throat> generally speaking. Yeah, five to six months, your toms can get up to 35 pounds. You might see an extra four to six weeks for them to hit that uh, that mark, free-ranging around the back with the ducks there, if you're not giving them a lot of supplemental feed every day. In terms of you know how, how big is too big for these birds, that's really more of a personal preference issue. Like how big of a turkey do you want to have at Thanksgiving or Christmas uh, you know, on your table for that special meal? Um a typical dress-out percentage, and this really kind of stands to go for most poultry, is somewhere between 70 and 75% of your live weight um, uh, to dressed weight. So if you've got a 35-pound turkey, uh, you're, you're looking at approximately about a you know a 25 to 26-pound bird um, at five to six months of age. Uh, you know, is is 25 or 26 pounds too big for a lot of families? It's not. Um, Maybe for you it is. If that's the case, just dress it out a little bit sooner. Um, <clears throat> you know, for a lot of our customers, uh, they want that 25-pound turkey because they've got a big gathering. They want plenty of leftovers, uh, uh, plenty of uh, meals that they can make and put in the freezer after Thanksgiving with that leftover turkey. As far as your feeding regimen, one thing I want to mention um, <clears throat> particularly when you're starting out the poults early on, just for anybody who's raising these guys, if you're putting them on a feeding program, you want to make sure that they've got plenty of protein. They're quite a bit different than chickens. Chickens, you typically start out with a 21% protein. 
uh, tricky. You want to make sure they've got at least 28% protein for the first few weeks of their life. They are fast growing, and that protein really makes sure that they can develop good bone structure um, so that they can carry around all that weight as they, they put it on you know, as they, as they grow. So really important to make sure they're getting enough protein, whether that's through supplemental feed or if you're letting them free range, just make sure they got plenty of high protein, uh, plant material that they can have access to, to, uh, be sure and grow properly. Jack, I hope that answers the question for you to learn more about me. You can check out my website at darbysimpson.com and talk about all kinds of things on that blog. There's a lot of free information out there concerning uh, raising poultry, pork, and beef uh, on the farm for homesteaders and for aspiring farmers who want to uh, take this on as a business. I actually just posted a new blog article recently on marketing that you can go and check out and give you some tips and tricks on how to market to new potential customers for your farm business. As always, Jack, thanks for the opportunity to call in and answer your question. Take care. Hey, Jack, this is Briscoe375 on the MSB from Texas, and I have two questions. One, would a one-way breaking plow work to make smaller swales rather than big swales? I'm thinking about putting more in rather than bigger ones. Question two, what should I do with all the cedar trees on my property? I live in Bosque County, Texas, and I just bought 10 acres with a house. The property is about 500 foot wide and 1,000 feet long, running generally north and south, along the long axis. There is a terrace on the east side of the ridge, east side of the property, a ridge west of that terrace with a grade of about 20 to 30 degrees. This ridge is covered with cedar trees. There is a second terrace running down the center of the property further west of the ridge. This central terrace is where I plan to put my perennial systems and soil. Even further west of the terrace is another ridge that leads down to a creek that drains north. I think that if I cut all my cedars, I will have an erosion problem. The soil on the middle terrace is 20 to 10 inches thick. Thanks. Love to hear. Love your show. First, making swales with a plow not only works, but it works very well. We're doing it at Elijah's Spring, and uh, we we put in some small garden ones that we we did. And when I say small, these are actually pretty sizable structures. We used a two-bottom plow. And we made two passes. We put it down on the contour line, and uh, we turned the sod over once, and then we took the tractor back around for another turn and put the plow on the ground right so it would move the, the, the piece of earth that it had turned up plus what was underneath it and flip it down the slope one more time. And we got beautiful flat-based swales. In fact, I would say for their size, they're as, as good or better than any swale I've seen made with an excavator. I've not actually seen a swale made with a uh, articulating bucket excavator like Jeff Lawton prefers. Uh, all the swales I've ever done with excavators have either been done with a bulldozer or done with a standard excavator where the excavator sits behind the, the thing and just pulls the dirt to itself. Uh, that works really well, but it doesn't make a really smooth swell. It requires some manual labor to square away. Uh, and, and your, your plow-based swells will too. You will have to clean them up, pull out some extra dirt, uh, what have you, but it will work. And as far as more instead of bigger, 
Maybe. I don't think you should get married to the idea of more. I think you need to look at the totality of the design that you're putting in. And if you put a swale in, know why you're putting it where you're putting it. Don't just do it just to do it. Who knows? Maybe this isn't even really a great property to swale. I doubt it. It sounds like a perfect candidate for swales. Uh, but don't necessarily just put in a bunch of swales because that's what you think you need to do. Understand why you're doing it. Understand the, the contour of the land. Understand the totality of the catchment. Make sure you're planning for sills and overflows, including multiple places the swales can overflow. If you put one sill in a swale, it is only a matter of time before it finds another place to make one for you. You need a secondary uh, failure point. Usually you can do that simply with end silling, which means one end of the sill is open and the other maybe you J-hook the bank around the end. You don't even need to J-hook it. I mean, a couple millimeters build up on one side will make sure the water goes out the other. And then compact that soil at the end, and then that way you have a, a front sill and a side sill. And if that front sill has lost its capacity, and that by, by doing that, it's not just that you know it'll overflow out the end, because it'll always do that. It's that you know which end, so you know where the water's going next. So you got to think about these things. Uh, you know, you put this in, and then one day you get, a, you know, five inches of rain in a day, what's it all going to look like? Is it going to give you what you want? So making it with the plow, though, is easy, and it's becoming one of my favorite ways to make swales, especially on large, relatively flat, open country with good soils. It, it seems maybe more ideal than anything else that you can do. Uh, as long as that plow can get down there and do the job and whatever's pulling, it's got the horsepower to make it happen. It is very fast. It is very efficient. And you know exactly what you're going to get at the end of it. And the beauty of the plow is when you put the plow down, it holds level. And as long as you're on a contour line, you know, you have to clean it up a little bit. But the bottom of that swale is beautiful. There's a listener that's got a video on YouTube where he put them in with a two-bottom plow. And I'm going to put that online for you today. I'm also going to link to a Facebook post at Elijah Spring where they planted the swales. Uh, not necessarily where they put them in, but it's a time-lapse video of them planting the swales. And all of those swales were done on a fairly steep slope, by the way, in mostly red clay with a two-bottom plow. And we're going to be working with exactly those kinds of swales at, in West Virginia in June at the Elijah Spring Summer Festival. We'd love to have you guys come up there with us. So anybody's listening, if you want to know more about that, get over to Perma... Uh, permaethos.com and sign up and come up and spend a weekend with us and feast on our pastured pork and our pastured poultry and all the other great stuff and learn about this stuff. Anyway, on, the next question of the cedars, well, what should you do? You think if you cut them down, you're going to have an erosion problem. Guess what? You're right. Um, and maybe, maybe not. If you cut, if you, if you go in there with a dozer or something and, and flatten them, yeah, you're going to have erosion problems. If you cut them, they're probably going to compass which means the majority of the roots are going to stay in place. You might not get as much erosion as you would think, but this is what I think you should do with your cedars. Until you know exactly what you're wanting to do with the land where they currently are, don't do anything. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. Cedars alleopathic. Yeah, unless you're trying to grow underneath them, it doesn't really matter, and there's always something to grow with anything. So if you want to grow with them, you figure out what does grow with them. If you, if you cut them, they'll coppice, and they'll get thicker than they are. So the only way that I would take to the position of removal is when I say, the day I remove these, I'm going to put in the following earthworks, and if, it, if necessary, I'm going to put the following irrigation in, and I'm going to seed it with this mix, and I'm going to plant it with these things. And I'm going to do all of that in a one-week-or-less project 
time to the right time of year where I'm not likely to have a lot of rain during it or if I do many misting rains that are going to get my, my cover crop seed up. And I wouldn't do it any other way because you probably are going to have massive amounts of erosion if you do it any other way. This would not be a project to do in the middle of summer. You throw your cover crop seed down and you, your, your freaking vetch turns into basically popcorn because it bakes. So this would be a project for spring or fall. And I think fall would be ideal in, because you're in pretty much the same climate I am, very close. And you get into like September-ish, end of September-ish, Early October, yeah, we can talk about putting some really nice earthworks in, getting a cover crop down, getting mulch on, and probably getting some rain, and the earthworks holding back the rain. And you say, well, I don't know what I want to do with it yet. Then leave it alone. Don't touch them until you know exactly what's replacing them, and you have a plan, and you have the material and the budget staged to do it all in one shot, because you're probably right about your erosion. Uh, with that, let's hear from another uh, council member. This question is also from me and pertains to my uh, specific situation. Uh, it's for Nick Ferguson. Uh, Nick was here and we planted a lot of elderberries on my property. And uh, some of them really didn't look like they were going to make it. And as I was saying on yesterday's show, they all made it pretty much. And some of them are booming. And they're sending up shoots like mad. And it would seem that there's an opportunity at some point to propagate these mulberries with division. So that would mean a shoot has come up uh, six, seven, eight, ten inches, some a foot away from the plant, and they're, they're coming up. And it would seem that I could dig those up, cut them off of the mother plant, and transplant them somewhere else. My gut would be the best time to do that would be during dormancy. I want to know if that's the case, uh, when the best time to do it is and transplant them is, and is there anything I should be doing right now other than just watching them grow if that is my eventual plan to either encourage more of this or to make sure that things are right for doing it when the time comes. What say you, Mr. Ferguson, uh, master of all things propagation? That's great. I knew they'd end up doing well for you as long as they made it through the first year. Um, as for the question, if you want to divide them, that's easy. Just wait till they're good and dormant. I'd shoot for sometime in December or January. Elderberries transplant well, and you can even propagate them with root cuttings, believe it or not. You can take the roots, cut just above a crotch or an angle, and roots that are larger than a pencil are best for this. You want to take about a six-inch piece, plant in moist soil about two inches deep, and you know lay the root horizontal, not vertical. Keep them moist, and they'll send up new shoots for you. And you can also root hardwood cuttings from previous year's growth. I cover the appropriate methods in the propagation course, and you'd likely have better success with a heel or mallet cutting rather than a straight cutting. Elderberry have pithy cores, and they're more prone to rot. But the basic idea is you're going to take the previous year's growth and either use a, a mallet or a heel piece, which is... Um, it's not going to be a straight cut. So a straight cut is just going to be the stick snipped off, and a heel or a mallet will be a stick that has a little bit of the other branch that it was attached to. So that that uh, union right there. And what that does, it just doesn't expose that pithy core. Um, you have extra material right there, um, and it, it helps prevent it from rotting. And if you want to maximize your propagation potential, then you should snip the flower heads as soon as they start to form because you'll force more energy into growth by eliminating the fruit yield. Now, 
You might not want to do that. Just whatever you're comfortable with. But if you want as many elderberries as you can and the healthiest plants you can, um, you could uh, force them to put more growth into root and vegetative growth by uh, eliminating the fruit yield this year. And just so you know, Adams, Johns, Nova, and York are all unpatented varieties, so anyone in the audience who has those or knows someone who does, feel free to propagate them and distribute them all you want. Thanks, Jack, for the question. This has been Nick Ferguson. Keep up the good work. And to the TSP community, grow some stuff. Uh, thanks, Nick. Um, I really appreciate your insights on that. I didn't know you could just do root cuttings. It sounds like you can do root cuttings just about the same way, a little, you know, a little bit larger cutting, a little more care than you do from comfrey root cuttings. So great way to start propagating elderberries, folks, which I think are an incredible opportunity in the uh, plant propagation business and uh, not something people are going to find at Home Depot and Lowe's. And there are some really great varieties in Adams, Johns, and uh, I don't remember the Nova, I think, is the other one, but those are all on my property. That's why Nick mentioned them, and they are they are fantastic. Uh, certainly an improvement on wild cultivars. Um, I do want to throw out something here for Nick that he sent to me in an email before we go to our next one. Um, he says, if you wouldn't mind, let the audience know that I'm putting together, I'm putting in a small permaculture orchard in Illinois, close to St. Louis. Work starts on the 11th and goes till the 15th. If anybody wants to come help plant trees and spread mulch, we would love the help. We aren't doing meals, but if anybody wants to camp out, there's room to put up tents, bring your own food. We will have plenty of water. Anybody interested can email me for details, permacultureclassroom at gmail.com. It's basically a free workshop on earthworks and food forests. Thanks, man. Uh, Nick. Uh, guys, I'll tell you one thing, too. If you are near St. Louis and you want to learn permaculture, Nick is a guy to go learn it from. He's an amazing guy. He has plant knowledge through the roof. And he's been referred to by more than one person as the nicest person you'll ever meet. And I, I have to say I concur with that. He is a propagation specialist. I don't know if I've said this on the air. Many of you that follow him on Facebook know this. But he has successfully propagated another little anarchist. Uh, Nick, about a month ago, he and his wife had their, uh, their, their, their latest baby. And they're now a family of five. Um, so, uh, I think his wife really wants a, a girl and they have three boys now. And I think he said, we got one more chance at that. And then you're just going to have to have what you got. Uh, but, I uh, just wanted to announce that. Yeah. Mr. Ferguson is pretty good at propagation of little anarchists. Anyway, uh, with that, I, um, I'm going to go ahead and take another one of your questions for me here. Question for Jack. Hi, Jack. This is Patrick from Raleigh, North Carolina, Plumber 4200 on the forum. My question is this. Have you ever had to deal with losing close friends or family that used to have a lot in common with you before you became a minarchist slash libertarian slash anarchist? If you have lost someone because of your new views, have you tried to reconnect or maybe help them see your point of view or possibly even welcome them up to the realities of the dichotomy and oligarchy? Details. I grew up in a very rural home in central Illinois, five miles from the nearest town, you know, gardens, chickens, really rural. Um, I've never been great at making a lot of friends, but I've had a lot of, you know, a few close ones. Um, my father has always been my closest friend. Uh, back in the day, the, in the early 90s, uh, I was a staunch conservative Republican just like him, and I turned him on to Rush Limbaugh. Uh, back in 1992, we used to think alike on every subject until I started listening to the Survival Podcast. 
I am now an agnostic deist, and like you, minarchist slash anarchist libertarian, and he and I seem to have nothing in common anymore. He is still into Hannity and Rush Limbaugh, and I just can't listen to those guys anymore without wanting to eat a bullet. I can't even tell him I'm not a Christian. I know you've said you can't make anyone who has wiped your butt listen to you or learn from you, but I'm hoping you can at least help me with some advice. This man has been very good to me in my life and is a good guy. But his idea of liberty is that he gets his concealed carry permit, but gay people shouldn't be allowed to be married. He just doesn't understand that liberty means that sometimes people get to do things that you don't like as long as they don't harm you. It's like talking to a wall. Any tactics that you could help me with? Uh, by the way, it's funny, when I, at, when I mention things that you have said on the air, he asks what your qualifications are. Then when I ask him what Rush Limbaugh's qualifications are, he just gets very quiet. It's, it's quite funny. Anyway, thanks again for all you do. Hope this hasn't been too long. Bye-bye. Well, it's the beginning, you know, of an ad hominem attack. They're cut off at the end, right? You know, well, who is this guy, right? So instead of actually responding to the issue with fact and logic and reason and, and good solid rhetoric uh, to make your case, you attack the source because the source has made you uncomfortable and has made you think and has under, uncovered weaknesses in your emotional argument. And, and that's really the heart of this. That you, you need to understand that there's, there's no way to convince somebody of something before they're ready, especially when the argument is, is, is 90% emotional. If you ask a person who is opposed to something like gay marriage to make a logical case against it without using religion, it's impossible for them to do so. Um, you can't actually, they can never actually articulate how it harms them in any way. And they'll say, well, somebody's going to have to bake a cake for some gay people somewhere or something like that. And, you know, my response is if, if this wasn't the, the issue that it was today, those things wouldn't be happening very much. And they're going to throw pastors in prison for not, I mean, come on, we're just, <sighs> the, the, the acting out by the other side is because they're tired of being oppressed. If we weren't oppressing them, they wouldn't be acting out. Um, I don't think that anybody should have to serve any customer that they don't have to serve. But that doesn't really get to the heart of your question. So the answer to your question is no. I've never really lost anybody that I didn't want to lose anyway because my shift in political views. This is probably largely because... I have been at least a libertarian, even though I voted Republican, but I've really been and expressed myself as at least a libertarian since about 1996, which is the entire family that I have now is my wife's family, and I met her in 1996. So um, the, the, the shift from libertarian ideology to anarchist ideology is in some ways a bit radical, um, but it, it, it doesn't appear radical to the people around you, because they've already assumed when you were a libertarian you were also an anarchist, because the book in school that they studied for 15 seconds during one political discussion and one class one time pretty much said that. So it, they don't really know that there's a big change from libertarian to anarchist. So I've actually had to always deal with the problems that you're talking about. And you know, keep in mind, like some of the closest family members we have, one of them is a school teacher and the other is a police officer. And anarchy doesn't really fit really well with either one of those, but we get along just fine. 
It's my wife's sister and her husband. I love them as family. Uh, they are the parents to a, a most wonderful niece and nephew and uncle could ever ask to have. Um, a, a young man who I'm going to go see play his final high school baseball game today, and he's going off uh, to, to play baseball in college now. He, very, very outstanding young man I'm very proud of. Um, things may change over the next four years, but right now he's going to school on a scholarship, and he wants to be an attorney. He wants to go to law school when he gets done with his, his you know, bachelor's degree. Um, that's not exactly in keeping with anarchist theology either, but we get along. And how do we get along? Well, you know, we talk about things like football, and, and Mark is a gun enthusiast, so we talk about things like guns. And, uh, you know, we, we, we talk about more about where we agree than where we disagree, you know, and he'll make his cases, his statist ideology cases to me at times, and I'll go, Well, that's interesting, and sometimes I'll say things that are a bit far out for him, and what he'll say is, you know, I like you, Jack. You don't ever hold back your opinion. Uh, basically, what it is is we have enough respect for each other as men to respect each other's opinion. You made a comment about liberty, and liberty is the freedom of everybody to do as they choose as long as they're not hurting anybody else. Well, here's the fact of the matter that we need to understand who have truly liberated our minds from the matrix. And that's what it is. And I know to some people that sounds, I don't know, egotistical, megalomaniac-like, uh, narcissistic, uh, whatever, like like we're better than you or something if you're, if you're still in the matrix. And we're not. We're not better than you. We've just seen the pattern. And all of us that, that are kind of outside of it now realize, if we're honest, that we were right there with you, completely wrapped up in the ideological bullshit ourselves at one time. That we were under the same level of control, and it's absolutely flatly wrong of us to look down on you. That doesn't mean we'll entertain your argument that we now know is bullshit, but it does mean we can respect you. And if we are to have our freedom to express our views, then the people that are still in that walk in life need to have their freedom to express their views. Now, it's interesting what happens when you actually reflect the argument back at them in a, in a context that they haven't heard it before from a fully informed stance, from an unemotional stance. Because, And this is why you'll find it difficult to deal with people. Believe it or not, you'd get along better with him if you were a liberal Democrat. Yeah. You would, because you would both argue from a concrete, emotional, locked-down state of accepted rules of engagement that society has agreed upon. He'd be for guns, you'd be against them, okay? Uh, you'd be, you'd be pro-gay rights, he'd be anti-gay rights. You, I mean, it, it, you could just go down the list. You would probably say that you were okay with marijuana, and he would say it's a terrible thing, we have to legislate freaking uh, ethics or, or whatever. And you could just keep going, right? You, you know, he would be pro-business and you would be pro-government. And that would then let you argue by proxy. This is the psychology of what happens in America today. So basically, let's say you were a liberal Democrat, he would tell you Obama sucks, and you would feel obligated to defend Obama. And then you would probably say, like, well, he's better than Bush was. And then he would feel obligated to defend Bush. And then the two of you would have a debate by proxy, arguing about who sucks worse. And they're not, neither one of them's you. So you can just kind of be at peace with this war by proxy, right? And this is how Americans argue in the political spectrum. This is why people that are still part of that dichotomy 
have such a hard time communicating with people that aren't. Because the first thing they do is attack the ideology of the of the left, or if they're on the left, the ideology of the right. And when they do that, and you go, well, you're completely right about that. I disagree with that. Those people suck too. I, it's like a short circuit. I don't know what to do now. I don't understand. He just broke the rules. He's not supposed to agree on that. Uh, he's not supposed to disagree with me and disagree on the other side's position on it as well. He disagrees with both of us. I don't know what to do. So then we're going to ridicule this. We're going to attack this. We're going to find every fallacy we can to throw at it to try to make it go away. Because it's much easier to stick within the rules, which are your side sucks, your guy's worse than my guy. But when you start saying, I don't care about any of the guys, and we're now to, you know, so that's why you're going to have the disconnect. So now the way you deal with the disconnect, again, is you let it go. You understand he has the right to his opinion. And you have to understand this is the most important thing that causes these heated discussions. Me changing your opinion about the issue doesn't, doesn't contribute to the square root of F all about the totality of the issue. If you change his mind about gay marriage, the, 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 the national debate will continue unabated, and he won't make a ripple in the frog pond of that issue. That issue is off to the races. It's going to run its course. And the, the fact of the matter is, is the people that were staunch opponents of this are going to be looked at uh, 25, 30 years from now with the same disdain as people that put up a sign in the front window of a restaurant that said no colors allowed. They're going to be looked at that way. And that's what they're really afraid of. They're starting, you know, that's why all of a sudden, you know, civil unions, let's offer civil, that's a white flag of surrender. They know which way the wind blows. In the, the words of the South Carolina de, uh, delegate at the Constitutional Convention, uh, or de, uh, the, the Independence uh, Convention in Philadelphia, when, they, when South Carolina decided that they would come on board with, with, with independence. They know which way the wind blows, and, and, and then it's time to get on board and at this point try to throw an olive branch out there. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So if you have a family member who's good to you, talk about the things that you agree with and don't try to force your ideology on them. And when they start bringing their ideology to you, learn to sip your beer and say, that's nice that you think that way. That's interesting. And you say, if you... If you entertain me, maybe you could explain and give them one of those little, you know, anarcho nuggets that are hard to explain and fight back against. And then uh, when they've tired of it, go talk about baseball or something else. Talk about the variety of hop in the beer that you're drinking and just let it go. And don't bring me up. Don't bring me up because you're, then you're going into his world, which is your guy versus my guy, Rush Limbaugh versus Jack Spirico. Um, this is about the, the two of you and your familiar relationship and your respect for each other as human beings and men. That, that's where it needs to stay. Uh, let's take another one. Uh, this, this one here, we'll give another one here for the expert counsel. This question is uh, for, for Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer. And my question for Michael is, can you talk about two or three ways or even more that people can use Raw beeswax to make useful products. Not really how to extract it, 
just what to do with it. I mean, I want this to be an answer for people that maybe aren't beekeepers, but they know somebody they can get wax from or barter from or buy. Like, what are what are the, the uses from wax? Because, you know, my understanding is it's the number two bee product right, right behind honey. So, uh, Mr. Jordan, Mr. Whisperer of the Bee, what say you about beeswax? Hey, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company here on the Expert Council to talk about beeswax products. In my opinion, beeswax is the number two product in the beehive and is the number one product price per pound. Good blocks of raw, clean beeswax sell anywhere from $15 to $25 a pound. We all know that you can make mass amounts of lip balm, lotions, and skin care products, but there are literally so many things out there that you can use beeswax for that there's too many to mention. I would just start out pouring beeswax in the ice trays. Each cube weighs around one ounce of beeswax. You can add oils and essential herbs before you pour it into the ice trays, like lemongrass oil to make swarm lure traps, or adding menthol and silver sulfites to make homemade burn rubs. By poking a small hole and adding a candle wick, you can make small scented candles, wrap them up for sale, or even gifts. If you choose not to add the herbs or the oil, you can take them directly poured into those ice trays to archery shops or bowstring stores for anything for archery or even string instruments. By advertising this on Craigslist that you have these, you could do different advertisements for candles, string instruments, archery, even selling them to people that are using it to pluck ducks and chickens. They coat them on the birds and then scraping off the wax, leaving a cleaner coat. With your beeswax, you can start making your own bee frame foundations for your hives or to sell locally to other beekeepers. This is really becoming a lucrative business because beekeepers are looking for a more natural product that is local for their beehives and not shipping in foundation or other wax products from all over and introducing it in their hive. Speaking of foundation, what about top bar hives? I have not seen a wax stick for a glue gun. If you would make a wax stick to be placed in a glue gun, man, you could put those beads of wax on top bar beehives so much faster. I could seal my meat bottles. I could use it for letters for weddings and formal invitations, putting a stamp in them. I think that product someone should come out with, adding many different colors to it. I think it would be super sweet. I think that beeswax glue guns is on the next order of my business. With that, all that, making ice cube tray wax mold and adding color and selling them to what they call encaustic artists. Encaustic paintings are also known as hot wax painting. It involves using heated beeswax to make colored pigments and adding them. You can even add liquid scents to them, giving it a prepared smell, adding it to the canvas, making it almost like you would make a stained glass window with smell. One of the greatest artworks is at the St. Catherine's Monastery, commonly known as St. Katrina. has one of the greatest pieces of acoustic art known. You can always use the wax to make impressions of keys or even make molds of jewelry of intricate designs and details. By carving a ring out of beeswax and placing it in sand, you can pour aluminum or even gold, letting it melt away, leaving beautiful jewelry to work from. You can use your wax molds for ammo for light shooting practice and home defense so you're not wasting a lot of powder and ammunition, getting you used to firing a gun. Wax has so many uses, 
I guess that's why for many years it was even used as a currency amongst many colonies in Europe. This has been the Bee Whisper with some info on beeswax for you. Keep your eye out on the BDC course that we have coming out. And take care and be safe out there. And have a blessed day. Hey, Jack. This is Nathan from Indianapolis, Indiana. I have a question for you um, about aliopathy, um, the aliopathic nature of hickories and pecans. The details are I have a 25-year-old grove of hickory and pecans that were planted. Um, there are about uh, 30 to 50 feet intervals, um, and now they have a fully enclosed overhead canopy. I'm trying to get an understory uh, established of nitrogen-fixing ground cover, um, such as clover, um, and also am looking to plant some shrubs like some goji bushes and some uh, some comfries, some herbaceous support species. Um, the research I've done says that uh, hickories and pecans are aliopathic and they're in the juggalone family. And I just was wondering if you could speak to how aliopathic they are and would it be to my benefit to go ahead with the nitrogen fixer uh, plantings and support species plantings. Thanks for everything you do. Thanks for the show. Um, hope I can get on. Thanks. Bye. All right, so let's let's start off with the, what's the motivation to try to get nitrogen-fixing plants underneath an existing canopy of mature trees that are doing just fine? We, we don't need to do that. There, there's no need for that. The reason we put nitrogen fixers into a forest, that establishment, is so that those nitrogen fixers can effectively fix nitrogen and produce high nitrogen amounts and high volume amounts, copious amounts of mulch. That's when we chop and drop these trees back to the ground during that establishment phase. So what they're actually doing is, they're yes, they're building this root net. And when we prune the roots, yeah, they drop some of those nitrogen nodules off. And yeah, our other trees can use them. Great. But what they're also doing is they're leaving a lot, like eventually a lot of them die. We, you know, we have a 10 to 1, 9, 10 to 1 ratio in the beginning. Put a pecan in, there's 9, 10 uh, nitrogen fixers. At the end, for every 10 overstory trees, there might be one or two left. So we're, we're killing most of them. And as we kill them, it's really a form of hugel culture. We're growing their organic matter into the ground. As the tree dies, all its roots stay in there. So it's an establishment protocol at that point. So if I have mature, happy, canopy, pecan, and hickory, I've done it. That's my yield now. That's, that's what everybody else is using nitrogen fixers to try to get to. It doesn't mean we can't maybe use some of that space, but it's not for growing because you have a whole different issue. So goji berry can do well with maybe half shade, but it's got to get sun. It's got to get some real sun on it for it to, to grow large like it wants to, to put berries on and to ripen them. Uh, Gumi, Autumn Olive, other great nitrogen fixers, love them. Um, they need sun too. People talk about them being invasive. They're not going to invade a forest because they don't grow in the shade. They grow, they're an edge species and you don't see them growing really well out in full on sun. They'll grow in an edge. So, Gumi and Autumn Olive, specifically your eastern, your southern, and your western edges of this would probably do just fine. Um, Autumn Olive is not heavily and highly affected by Juglone. 
so it would do okay. And what you need to do is look for the species that will grow with juglone. Don't try to grow some that doesn't like juglone where the juglone is. Grow what grows there. Black cherry will grow there. Persimmon will grow there. Maple will grow there. Mulberry will grow there. Um, all of those species will do well. Blackberry doesn't love it, but if you had like the trees that I'm talking about extending your edge and coming into blackberry, it'll do fine. And by that point, you can grow anything you want. The next thing is pecan and hickory are relatively low in the allelopathic compound juglone that um, it has this adverse effect. That's not that they don't have any, but compared to black walnut, they have a lot less, and they even have less uh, than Carpathian walnut and, uh, and some other species like heartnut. So they're a lower percentage of juglone. So they have less effect just because there's less of it, but if there's a bunch of trees and they're all mature and they have a large mass drop, Uh, and a large leaf drop, you're probably going to have a significant amount there. So you, what you really need to look for are edge species to extend the edge with that are tolerant and shade lovers that do well with juglone inside that canopy. But just, the, again, the deal is if you have these huge mast producing nut trees dropping nuts, that's what everybody else is trying to get to. Your forest is already near climax It's already done it, and there was probably tons of growth under that canopy when those trees were young, and now the shade and the juglone have opened up that canopy, or opened up the space under that canopy to be forest-like. So it's a good thing. You can do stuff in there, but you know one of the things you might consider is getting a hold of some hickory or oak or what have you, or pecan from your pruning, and make some logs, inoculate those with shiitakes, and then do your shiitake mushroom cultivation in there. That would be another example. Uh, ginseng could be cultivated in that environment. Ginseng and golden seal are very high-dollar medicinal herbs, very slow growth rates, but they'll do just fine in there. They're native to the area. Uh, on your edges where you get some sun in, Uh, Virginia groundnut or just Apis Americana groundnuts would do well as long as it's good and moist. Um, muscadine probably would tolerate it on the edges because um, it's very similar to fox rape and fox rapes grow right in with the hickories. So don't overthink this, but just realize like if you want to try to take a gumi and stick it in the middle of the shade, it's going to be very lackluster. You're more working with your edges now. And there's a lot, anything that grows where these trees grows, um, the analog would grow. So elderberry grows right in with hickory. So that means a cultivated elderberry would do well for you. About the only exception to that rule is that, that black cherry uh, tends to do well. Native black cherries, choke cherries, and the domesticated cherry varieties tend to not do well around juglone. Now, you could attempt to graft um, a domesticated cherry onto black cherry. Uh, I've heard various reports about how well that actually works. Apples tend to have some issues, but crab apples do well, and you can get away with grafting onto native crab apple. So those are, those are my thoughts on that. With that, let's take a, uh, another question from an expert council member.
Well, this question is for uh, Mr. Stephen Harris, and uh, I tried to come up with a question for Steve that wasn't overly technical for a change. Uh, a simple everyday prepper question, and it's simply what you know. What are your go-to three, four, five, six, seven, eight items, whatever it is you want to tell us about, Steve? That would be in your blackout kit. Now, I'm not talking about your backup batteries. I'm not talking about generators and stored fuel and things like that. I'm talking about we're sitting in the house in the middle of the night. Uh, everything's going good. Kids are in their pajamas. Everybody's ready for bed. Uh, and all of a sudden, boom, power goes out. And now we go get the blackout kit. That's where we get our first stuff so we can start uh, either just uh, it's short-term blackout. It's just what we're going to use to finish up the night and go to bed. Or we're going to go down the hall and turn up stuff from the backup batteries and get the inverters out and all that. Where do we just start at? What goes in your Go-to items for the blackout kit, Steve. Hi, this is Steve Harris for the Expert Council. Jack sent a question to me, and he wanted me to tell everyone what I have for my first immediate preps for light. When the power fails, what do I go to? And not the inverters and the power cords and the lights. What's the first thing I go to? Underneath our TV in a little cabinet is uh, my little prep the stuff for when the power fails. Inside there, I have an LED lantern. This is made by Coast, C-O-A-S-T, and it takes four D-cell alkaline batteries. Keyword, alkaline batteries and D-cells. It'll put out about 375 lumens uh, at max, but the nice thing about it is it's got a knob, and you can change the brightness all the way down to nothing to all the way up. So you can put just enough light on something to work on it or do what you have to do, or you can turn it all the way up and light the entire room up. But it gives you a great deal of flexibility and a great deal of uh, conservation for the batteries. Why am I saying D-cell alkaline batteries? This is for storage, okay? I recommend double A's for everyday use and for preparedness and fast charging and everything else. They're really good. This is something I'm putting into the drawer and forgetting about for years. This drawer has been in place since 2004. So, geez, 11 years. D-cell, double uh, A battery has about 2,500 milliamp hours to it. A D-cell has over 15,000 milliamp hours to it. It's a tremendously larger source of energy. Duracell alkaline batteries will also last over 10 years at room temperature. So you know what that date on the battery means? That date on the battery means... This is when the the battery is not dead, not you're going to throw it away. This is when the battery has about 80 to 85% of its energy still left in it. I have D-cell alkaline batteries that are over 20 years old that I continue to test, and they still have power in them that you can use. So when you put stuff away for a long time and you want it to work when you go to it, you're going to do this with D-cell alkaline batteries. That is the takeaway, and they better be Duracell. Also in the cabinet, I have a Maglite flashlight, LED flashlight, that takes two D-cell alkaline batteries. In the same cabinet, I have a Grundig S450 DLX AM FM shortwave radio. So when a power fails, you can get to the cabinet, pull out the lantern, turn it on, light everything up, 
if I have to go outside, I can take the flashlight, go outside, look around, you know, whatever, you know, you use a flashlight for, for pointing at something. Then I can pull out the radio, flip it on, get it on a local AM station, and I'm now getting news instantly. I then use uh, the flashlight to go downstairs, and downstairs hanging on my prep shelf, I have the famous Energizer Trailfinder 7 LED headlight that I've told you guys all about over and over and over and over. It runs on th- three AAA batteries, so I can turn off the D-cell, put this on my head, and then I can go through my preps and pull out the inverter and the power cords and the LED lights and run extension cables and stuff like that. Also hanging in the basement from a nail in the ceiling is a Coleman two-mantle insta-start lantern. I've been using this for years. So if I go downstairs or something happens, you know, the roof falls in, my uh, lights aren't, my LED lights aren't working, the batteries aren't working, everything's wet or whatever, I just go to the Coleman lantern and I turn on the gas. The propane cylinder is on it all the time. I turn up the gas, print the insta-start button, and boom. I now have illumination that doesn't require any type of, of electricity. So my different lights, I have two is one, one is none. The Coleman lantern is three is for me. I forgot to mention that also in the cupboard, I have another freshly sealed pack of Duracell D-cell batteries. It's an eight pack. So not only are there batteries in the radio all the time, batteries in the flashlights all the time, but I have an extra eight batteries sitting in there in case the ones in the lights go dead or, you know, whatever happens or I use them up and I need more batteries right now. I know where to get the D-cell batteries. So the thing you take away from this is when you got to have something you're going to go to 10 years from now and you want it to work the first time, that is when you are using D-cell alkaline batteries. For everything else I teach in the preps and the recharging and the daily use light during a pre- during preparedness, you know, after a week, after two weeks, after a month, those are all AA stuff because we can recharge them instantly off of our battery bank or off of our car, and we can use them instantly. But everything else is D-cell. Also, since I have a lantern and a flashlight in the same drawer, I now have two is one, one is none. If one doesn't work, the other one will. Jack, thanks for the awesome question. This is Steve Harris with the Expert Council. Oh, everything I just told you about, the lantern, the headlamp, the uh, flashlight, and the LED lantern are all on the bottom of prep1234.com, P-R-E-P-1234.com. So you can go there and look at it and go buy it at Walmart, or you can buy it off of there through Amazon. Whichever you guys want to do, it's there for you to see exactly what I'm talking about. See you, guys. Awesome, awesome stuff from Stephen Harris there. I knew he'd just blow that one up, so uh, that's why I sent that question to him. My next question actually is for expert council member Brian Black of ITS Tactical, one of the coolest websites online of all things tactical. Um, Brian's also a really great friend, and I, I wanted, honestly, not just an answer for the audience, but his opinion is my friend on uh, this, and that is, it looks like we're getting open carry in Texas, finally. It's not quite the way we wanted it with constitutional carry. Uh, you'll have to have your concealed carry permit, but you'll then have the option to carry open or concealed. 
I'd like to know Brian's thoughts specifically on when, when the, this option comes into play, when will he choose to carry openly versus concealed, uh, and what are, what are his thoughts on equipment for doing that, and specifically any equipment that might be really good equipment to switch over. So if I, the reason I like open carry is it's more comfortable to me. Uh, but there are places I can see where, where stores or whatever would say, you know, you can't open, you can carry, but you can't carry openly. Or I might have to go do business at a government facility or someplace where I just can't open carry. And I've been open carrying, and rather than leaving my vehicle, uh, my gun in my vehicle, I might choose to just switch over for that and then go back. Is there any gear that would be good for that? And what are your thoughts on gear in general and uh, how you'd make this decision? Hey, Jack and the TSP audience, this is Brian Black, and I am fielding the question for the expert council on open carry. Um, so I presented with the question to uh, ask that now that open carry looks like it will become a law in Texas, how will you decide when to open versus conceal carry? And do you have any suggestions for gear-like holsters that will easily convert on the fly to concealed uh, for, let's say, going into a building that permits carry but opts out of open carry, which seems to be likely under the new law? Um, I appreciate the question, first and foremost. Um, I do carry on a regular basis, and the open carry um, issue is something that not everybody agrees with. Um, while I'll give my stance on it, um, there's a lot of people that think that perhaps open carry should not be something that Texas undertakes. Um, I think the opposite. I think that it is important to adopt open carry in Texas, but my, me, myself, um, I will not be open carrying, and that's not because I don't believe in it, but I just think that I'm of the opinion that I why show my cards if I don't have to. So um, I will continue to carry concealed, um, but I like the protection that it, that it provides to um, CHL holders, which is the concealed carry permit in Texas, uh, which is that or your gun happens to flash while you're going into something or your shirt comes untucked or something like that, um, you'll have protection under this law where, you know, oftentimes um, that's uh, that's something you can get in trouble for in Texas. So um, I do like that option. So um, in terms of me deciding whether to open or conceal carry, I, I will continue to conceal carry. That's just the, uh, the, the stance that I'm going to take. Um, however, I do think it's important to, to have the ability to open carry. And um, if I'm out on the range and stuff like that, um, I will do definitely open carry, and it's good to know that I have that option when I'm on land out hunting and things like that. So I think it's important in that aspect, too, and that's how I'll personally use it. Um, as far as holsters, um, I'm a big fan of the Raven Concealment Vanguard for concealed carry, and that's what I use on a daily basis. Um, I've been using that holster for a number of years now. I'm very happy with it. It's a low-profile option. I appendix carry, so it works really well for, for the method that I carry. As far as convertible holsters, I'm not really sure on that. Um, what I would like to say with, with open carry, though, is that I would recommend some type of retention. Um, retention being that one can't just grab a gun that's in your holster and pull. So similar to law enforcement, they've got, I believe, mandated different departments are, are mandated to have retention, but I think level two is, is kind of the minimum that's uh, kicked around in law enforcement, but that prevents somebody from just doing a gun grab and you know, using your firearm against you. Um, just to say that I appreciate the, the question. Um, thanks for the opportunity to be on this Ravel podcast, and thank you to all the listeners.
Yeah, I have to say I mostly agree. I don't know that I will be spending an awful lot of time open carrying. I think it's highly situational. I, I personally totally support your right um, to go to the mall and open carry if your state allows it. I, I totally, completely, 100% support your right to do that. I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to draw attention to myself um, for any reason, really. I, I want to be as much of a gray man as I can in most situations. And I personally believe that if the time ever comes that I need to defend the lives of others, that by not showing my cards, as Brian puts it, I am in an ideal situation to render aid. Uh, the fact that someone wouldn't... Because I actually think that if someone walked into a shopping mall, for instance, and they had decided they were going to shoot the place up, and I'm sitting there with my 1911 on my hip, uh, they would say, well, maybe I need to shoot this guy first because he'll shoot back at me. Uh, now, if there's a bunch of people in there open carrying and everybody's okay with that, uh, that actually would turn into a deterrent. And that's why I actually think both of these schools of thought work best. And the whole point of the open carry legislation in Texas isn't to make it open carry, it's to make it carry choice, to do whatever you want to do. Now, all of that said... I wouldn't even confine it to the range and, and, and hunting, because hunting, you're already okay. If you're handgun hunting anyway, you're totally okay with open carry in pursuit of game in the state of Texas. If you're licensed, then you're out hunting. Um, but what if I'm just walking a trail? What if I'm just hiking, right? And, and I'm carrying a gun for protection. In that environment, I don't mind somebody knowing that I'm armed at all, And I, I actually have quicker access to my gun. So if I'm camping, if I'm fishing, if I'm somewhere where I'm not in a heavily densely populated area and my concerns are more like things like coyotes and two-legged scumbags that, that might come and use that, the isolation itself to, um, to attack me. In that situation, I actually would prefer they do know that I'm armed. Because people that look for isolation is a way to decide who to attack, generally looking for victims. And the guy walking confidently down the path with a 150-pound German Shepherd on one side and a 1911 on the other side doesn't look like a victim very much. Uh, and, and there are more and more occurrences, too, of these big cats, um, both mountain lions and the black cats that are coming up out of the uh, of Mexico, which I thought was bull when I first heard it, but I've got pictures of these things on game cameras sent to me from North Carolina, so I know they're here in Texas. Uh, my good friend Neil Franklin just called me the other day. He had a chow killed. He assumed it was coyotes, and so he called me to ask what to do about the coyotes. And, uh, you know, Chow's a pretty sizable dog. He's a big, giant dog, but it's not like he had a Yorkie killed. And so he had called the vet before I got back to him. The vet said one of his neighbors just called in and had a horse taken out. And I don't mean a mini pony or something. I mean a full-size riding horse, and there was hardly anything left of it. It's not that coyotes in a large pack couldn't take down a horse. It's just not usual. Uh, they'll take foals. They take calves. They usually don't take cattle and horses. And we don't have wolves here There's some rumors of Mexican red wolves moving back in, but they're a smaller wolf. We don't we don't have like what you guys have up in Wyoming with the wolf reintroduction down here. That's most likely a cat. And so I look at it this way. The speed and power of that animal is such that if I'm in an area where like that's my primary reason to be carrying a gun, 
I don't want a rifle pinned against my chest, and I don't want to have to reach into my my inside the waistband holster to get that gun out. So I think that it's going to be more of in urban areas, in shopping centers, in stuff like that, I would choose the option of concealing. And most places outside of that area, I mean, if I was going up here to the feed store or something like that, I had my gun on me and I was walking around outside with it and had open carry, I think it would be real convenient to just drive up to the feed store. and They're not going to have a problem. That's not an issue. And I think that if open carry is going to work well for us in this state, we shouldn't open carry just to stick it in people's faces. We should do what makes sense for us. And that doesn't mean like if you feel you want to open carry, you shouldn't. But if you feel you want to open carry just because you're trying to make a point, I think we've done more harm on this issue with that attitude uh, than we than we really would do if we were just going about our business and now saying, now that this is the law, I'm going to use it the way it makes sense. I don't see the need for me to go to Macy's displaying a gun. I won't stop, like, I feel like Brian, I won't stop you from doing it, but I think that if we all do that, we're more likely to get more and more of these stores to, to post what they call the 3006 sign down here, which says you can't carry it all. And that kind of is counter to the purpose. And it, it's fine to say, well, we'll boycott them, we'll boycott them. And, and, and trust me, there's places, when they have it up now, I'm done, I won't go there. Uh, but if we do it to ourselves, then we kind of only have ourselves to blame. And some of these stores will be doing that not because they're anti-gun haters, but because, and not just because of political pressure, but because we live in a litigious society where everybody sues everybody for everything, and it won't take long before a manager don't know nothing about guns, sees people walking around Macy's or whatever, freaks out, and they talk to corporate, and corporate talks to the lawyer, and the lawyer is always going to say, post the sign. No matter what the lawyer thinks about gun rights, They're going to say post the sign because their job is to protect their client. So I think we need to think about that as this new law comes in. Uh, I was really thought it was kind of cool that Brian and I were in such similar uh, thought processes on it. Let's uh, let's take another one uh, for me this time. Hey Jack, this is Troy from PA. Uh, two questions. Uh, one is, what can I use? What kind of plants can I use to decompact soil? Where I had my pigs last year, it now holds water. And where I want to move my pigs is under a chestnut tree, and that was my second question. Will those spiny hulls hurt the pigs in any way uh, underneath the chestnut tree? I think it's a Chinese chestnut. It's definitely not a horse chestnut. Uh, thanks for all you Steelers. Sounds like a little cell phone handoff problem there at the end, uh, tower to tower thing, but I got the gist of it, and thank you. I know where you were going with that. I appreciate you. Anyway, um, the uh, chestnuts and pigs go together like peanut butter and jelly. I can't see there being a problem except for it sounds like basically you're confining the pigs to a relatively small area, and if they have to lay on those things long enough, I guess it could become a problem, but probably not. Um, ranging pigs under chestnut trees and finishing them on chestnuts is a great way to do things. It's exactly what uh, Mark Shepard does at New Forest Farm, and he has some of the finest pork product you will ever put your hands on. So feeding pigs chestnuts is good to go, and they know what to do, and they're not going to get hurt 
by feeding on the nuts if they're still attached to the burrs here and there and what have you, and, and they'll deal with the burrs. Now, if you have young pigs you're raising and there's a whole bunch of burrs and they're laying on them, that could be irritating to the skin. So it, you really need to make sure they have a place in the shade uh, that would be comfortable for them. And that may be as simple as just putting down a bunch of uh, straw or something uh, in in one of the areas so that there's some insult, something to be there besides just a pile of of, of the husks. Um, and certainly in the fall, when those nuts drop, those pigs will be in pig heaven. Um, the problem is pigs are very good for soil when we move them around. They root things up, they plow it, they do all kinds of great things, and Their compacting nature can be harnessed to make little ponds. We can make a little depression uh, with a little bit of water catchment that almost holds water but doesn't quite do it. We can run pigs through there and they'll wallow in it and rub on it and compact it, and eventually they'll turn it into a pond. Um, but that's if we're moving them, and, we're, and when we're holding them in a spot to make a pond, we know why we're doing what we're doing. If we just put them in a place, the, 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 the ground under that tree will be muddy, stagnant, holding water and compacted just like the other places that you just took them off of uh, at the end of the year. In fact, probably halfway through this year, you'll be, you'll be there. So I'd like you to at least consider the possibility of paddock shifting your pigs, especially since you can train them so easily to two, two, two hot wires um, on uh, rebar. Uh, that's what we do at Elijah Springs. We have rebar that we use for our fencing, for our portable fencing. We string two hot wires across the bottom of them. They do have to be trained. We put them in a holding area with those wires. They get zapped a couple times. They learn to respect the wires. And, um, you know, in all but like some kind of crazy instance, you probably, after they're trained, could have no, no heat on those wires, and they won't do it. They'll walk right up to it, and they stop because they learn. They're a pretty smart animal. If you did that and you were moving them like you know, from the chestnut tree back to where they were over here, you'd get a pulsing effect in your land and you'd, get, you'd do less damage to the land because you're going to end up with everything in excess, compaction in excess, waste in excess, water in excess, insects in excess. So I'm not saying that I'm like a purist on this and you have to do this. I'm just saying you might want to consider it because you're going to have the same issue next year in the new area. As for decompacting soil, that's easy. If it's got a long taproot, that's what it's made for. So your your go-to here would be tillage radish or daikon radish. Tillage radish is just a variety of daikon. Um, any of your deep-rooted brassias like mustard um, or, or any other radishes would do well. I mean... Honestly, even like icicle radish and stuff like that could go in a mix. Turnip will actually do a pretty good job for you there uh, as far as putting organic matter, but you still want the deeper-rooted things. Uh, chicory would do well. Uh, those are your deep. Now, you don't want to only put decompactors in, right? Because they're only going to figure out certain places that they're going to do their, their thing. And you're going to have a lot of empty space in between them. So you want to put in some regular stuff like clover and, and what, what, what all like that as well. And what you might find is like you might put some clover out there and your radish and all might take off. And you might think, well, none of the clover came up and it's not going to work or whatever. As the ecology changes, all of a sudden you'll, you know, you'll think, well, I put that clover out there three months ago. I don't see any of it. All of a sudden there it is. Just starts growing. Uh, well, you have to understand is that soil is a seed bank. 
in a, a square foot, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of seeds sitting in there. Some have been in there for years, and most of them are still viable. And they have different triggers. If you can pack, if, honestly, if you do nothing, I can tell you right now what you're going to see. Things like docks and thistles will start showing up on their own. Now, I'm not sure it's going to be that, but it's going to be things like that. Deep tap-rooted weeds will show up all by themselves. It'll start to dry up some. You'll see a little green here and there. And something, deep tap-rooted, dandelion, etc., will show up. Something can deal with all the nitrogen as well. And it'll start to change all by itself because you've created a, a trigger. You've compacted the soil, and therefore you've created a trigger event to cause decompaction weeds to germinate. If you were to go in there now and wait till it dries out and till it, you're going to see things this time of year like chickweed, hairnet roots, because you've decompacted, so you'll trigger those. You've also turned the soil, and therefore you've brought those weeds to the surface. Whatever you fed the pigs that went through the pigs, many of those weeds and seeds are in their, their, their waste that are now mashed into that soil, and those things are going to trigger. Um, so it's up to you how you want to handle this. And I'm not saying not to seed it. I'm just saying like that trigger events happened and, and you'll be surprised at how quickly something will show up there. It, it will probably take longer than normal because not only is it compacted, it's overly wet and it's overly fertile. So it might help for you to do a little bit of assistance with some decompa mechanical decompaction, whether it's with a broad fork Or this I would rototill. I, people think I'm anti-tiller. I'm anti-tiller in your garden every time you garden. Um, I think that in this situation, wait for it to dry up, and you hit that with a tiller and then put your seed down. And still use your decompactors, your chicories, uh, your plantains, your, your radishes, etc. You'd be surprised at what happens. And definitely throw some purple top turnip in there. It's really cheap. Um, it's a good yield for you, the greens and the turnips. And if you don't like turnips, pick the turnip up. Throw it to the hog. But leave, you know, leave 10, 20% of them in the ground to rot. Uh, and they'll do a lot for you as well with reducing irrigation requirements wherever you take this thing next. Uh, let's take another one for an expert council member. This question is for Gary Collins. The question is basically, uh, what do you try to, what can you do to try to stay paleo when you're traveling and you have to eat out at restaurants? Uh, just because you're traveling or be many times because of social situations where you have to go up with family or business contacts or, or what have you. And, and more so in like smaller areas where they don't have decent quality restaurants where, you know, everything, every other thing's a greasy spoon and stuff like that. Um, and you, you, you know, you can't just find a nice steakhouse and go in and get a salad and a steak and say, that's, you know, how I'm going to handle this tonight. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Gary? We, we live in the real world and there's times we have to deal with situations like this. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and I wanted to talk about some tips for you to stay primal and paleo while you are on the road traveling for vacation or for business meetings. Uh, I've gotten to be an expert at this. I traveled a lot during my government career, so I had a whole system of what I would do in order to stay on track while I was out of town. And what it usually consisted of is I would always pack uh, jerky, some almonds, pumpkin seeds, uh, maybe even sunflower seeds, uh, just what your preference is, and also protein bars and protein uh, powder 
and I actually would bring a handheld blender. I'd pack that in as well. Um, obviously not a good idea to try and take that stuff with your carry-on, but I would check that stuff. I would go with my checked baggage. Um, or if I'm traveling by car, it's easy. You know, I just take it with me. It's very accessible. I can use it as snacks on the road so I don't have to stop and, you know, at a convenience store and eat something I really shouldn't be eating. But on the road, what I would plan is that I knew that at least one meal of the day I would have to eat with my associates or coworkers. So I just planned for that and knew that one meal out. So the, the stuff that I brought would basically supplement the rest of the day for uh, breakfast or lunch, and I could get by and then eat dinner with everyone. But with that being said, dinner would be as easy as well. Even if you're in a small town, I was able to find this. I would usually just order a steak, um, and I would cut the fat off, If obviously because getting grass-fed steak outside of you know your local area where you know where it's at or at a restaurant is pretty difficult. It's getting easier these days. But animals store toxins in their fat. So CAFO animals, you want to cut the fat off. That's a, a tip I always tell people if you're really worried about ingesting all the toxins that animal has eaten or, you know, given antibiotics and hormones. It's not perfect because it'll still be in the meat, but it will help because it will, you know, get rid of the fat where a lot of it is. Uh, I've always do that and I just ask for steamed vegetables or a garden salad on the side. And I've never had any issues. I've always been able to to order something like that. And if you want, you can get chicken, usually grilled chicken breasts or, you know, or just a salad with grilled chicken. Uh, there's many ways to go. It's just a simplicity. Don't worry about being perfect. I never did on the road. I knew that it was going to be more difficult. So I would either, you know, make sure to exercise a little bit more that day if I knew I was going to go out and we were going to have a few drinks and, you know, maybe even a dessert with dinner or something like that. So remember, we're not striving to be perfect. We're just trying to do the best we can. And, uh, you know, also with beef jerky, almonds, uh, some seeds and protein powders and protein bars, those are easy to find when you get there. Say you don't have enough time or you didn't want to bring all that stuff or you only brought a carry-on, you didn't want to get half of it jerked out by TSA and thrown in the garbage. When you hit the ground, those are easy items to find almost anywhere. Even, you know, a, a gas station convenience store will have at least half of that stuff. Will it be perfect? No. But it's better than the alternative. So I hope that helps you guys stay on track and make sure to go to www.primalpowermethod.com and check out my blog as I have a lot of tips on how to stay primal and paleo with a busy lifestyle. Hey Jack, this is Greg from Wilmington, Delaware. What can I do with a large rock in my garden? It's a, it's a pretty big rock. It's sitting on the surface, so there's no digging to get around it. But uh, I'm just wondering if there's anything productive I can do with it. It's about the size of a footlocker. It's kind of rectangular shaped and flat on top. Uh, I live in the suburbs, so my backyard is uh, is not ideal for gardening. It's It's got very limited sunlight, and uh, I'm thinking that this rock needs to go because it's taking up some, some uh, valuable garden space. Just wondering what your th thoughts are. Thanks, Jack. It certainly can be frustrating to have to give up space, even space of that size, when space is limited as a whole. But we might be able to turn the rock into an asset. The first thing it makes me think of was a, is a very large-scale method of agriculture that Jeff Lawton described in one of his PDCs that I went through. 
And I can't remember, there's actually a name for it, and I can't remember what it is, but there's places where you have these big rock features in the landscape, and I'm talking like something you go climb as a rock climber, really, really big. And what people would do is put a berm in a circle all the way around the rock. So you ring the rock with a berm. And again, we're talking large-scale agriculture here, community-scale, village-scale agriculture. And then it would rain. Well, there's an interesting thing about rock. The, the runoff of water from rock is 100%. No water goes in. All the water sheds. So when this rock was rained on and, and the rain came, 100% would run off, it would run into the ground, and the berm would retain it in the landscape. And they actually might even put in something akin to swales for infiltration or, or beds on contour inside this berm, and then all of that water would infiltrate off the rock, and you could go into pretty big-time desert climates and see these orbs of green in these settlements around rocks. Right, So we're not talking like the Sahara here. We're talking about edge desert environments. They do get rain. Places like California maybe where you get you know, 10, 12 inches of rain, very dry, arid places. But since there was so much infiltration off of these rock formations, they would be able to grow things normally couldn't. You could em emulate that in miniature. You could basically put in a micro earthwork all the way around this rock, and you're going to get 100% runoff. You could go in and do things like create deep furrows in a pattern, and it might look really cool, kind of zen-like, um, so that when the water comes off, it doesn't just make a pool, that it, it actually infiltrates into the soil. On that note, if you have a, like let's say the north side of it, where evaporation is going to be minimized, it's going to be hard to grow much anyway, um, it's shaded out, uh, we could go there and dig a hole. And in that hole, we could put a liner, or we could use sodium bentonite to line the hole, nat more natural looking, and we can put in a pond. Now the water's shed, we have infiltration, plus we have a frog pond, we have habitat. We ring that with some other rocks, something that looks similar to this natural feature that's in the landscape. We make it look really natural, like it was just supposed to be there. We make it pretty deep, because it's not going to be that big, it sounds like. So the deeper, the more stable, the more self-regulating it is. Now we can put in some aquatic yields. Maybe we can put something toward where the sun gets in there a little bit, put a couple pots in there, throw some Chinese chestnut in there, uh, maybe grow some watercress. Watercress doesn't need a lot of, and then anything else you want, maybe throw some fish in there to keep the mosquitoes uh, problem at bay. And now we got a pretty little feature, and we've got a rock feeding the water into the land and to the pond, and then we have this great big thermal mass in the rock. So then as a season extender, we can start, take the south-facing or the west-facing or the east-facing side of the rock, depending on what we're growing and how much it need, help it needs, and plant really, really close to it late in the season, our greens that we can extend into the fall in your northern climate, and then that rock will help those things grow. Uh, however, it would, might be this giant heat reflector in the summer. So maybe we don't want that. So maybe in the spring, we plant some sort of a, 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 a climber like runner beans all around the rock on the sunny side. We let them climb over and cover the rock. That'll reduce the temperature of the rock in the summer. It'll also create like these air pockets in there. And what will actually happen then is the rock will still heat up and it will cool down a bit faster. 
And with that whole system there and that pond behind it, you've got a little bit of a heat exchange type of operation going on there. You're going to create a dew effect, and you're going to get additional irrigation help from that dew effect using that rock. So instead of the rock being a problem, we can turn the whole thing into an asset. We can make it look cool. We can make it functional. And just about the time of the year that you want to stick lettuce and, and spinach and things up against the sunny-facing side of that thing, and you want the heat, well, your beans will be done for the year. They'll be dying off. You pick the last of your beans, uh, and you don't even really have to pull them off of the rock. Just take a pair of snips, go along the bottom, and, and just cut the vines, and then the vines will die back. The leaves will fall off the rock. The next rain will come and wash everything off. It'll mulch your garden, and you're just cruising on through. And if I, I you know, I, I can only take so much time on an individual answer to show like this, but I mean, I could almost do an entire design show on designing around large rocks. It, it, it is an asset if properly managed and used. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of interesting ways we can incorporate rocks into the landscape. Understand there's people that spend an awful lot of money for somebody to deliver multi-ton boulders for landscaping. Um, so it might have to go. If it does, fine, but those are the ways that I might try to use it rather than get rid of it. With that, uh, I think I have just one more today, and that is my question for Chef Keith Snow. Um, Chef Keith, I have just planted about 30 blackberry bushes. I have about another 70 going in this year. Uh, just today, uh, Jesse uh, texted me from West Virginia, and when I bought 100, I actually bought 200 and had a hundred of them set to West Virginia, and they're putting in a hundred blackberries at Elijah Spring. So these are plants that uh, a perfect yield. You might get thirty pounds of plant when they're mature, four or five years old. Cut that in half, man. Though even you still fifteen pounds of plant, a uh, hundred plants, fifteen hundred pounds. Cut that by a third and call it a thousand pounds. Half a ton of blackberries. We'll give some away. We'll sell some. We'll make meat out of them. That's still a lot of blackberry. I have a feeling they'll do even better up in West Virginia in their soils and uh, be able to propagate by division. And it's conceivably five, six, seven, ten thousand pounds of blackberries coming out of there five years from now. Uh, what do we do with it all other than just making jellies and jams? Um, blackberry seems like it has a lot of potential, and I wanted to turn to a culinary expert and say, what do you do with a half a ton or more of blackberry, Keith? Hey folks, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. Wanted to uh, go into Jack's question about blackberries. Now, um, fruits like this, wild fruits and berries are awesome to have on your homestead. My wife has always wanted a big, giant blackberry or raspberry patch that's on the someday list. So, um, Jack, if you're going to have a big harvest of these things, you're going to get tired of making jam and jelly because the uses, I love jam and jelly made from blackberries, don't get me wrong, but you know, you can only eat so many bagels, peanut butter sandwiches and toast. And given that you're on the paleo side, uh, that might not be the best plan. You could make some of those, uh, blackberry jams and, and, um, sell it to your your duck egg customers as a value-added product. I'll talk about a few others in a minute. First things first, if you're going to process lots of berries, you need a squeezo strainer. So just go on the Internet and do a search for squeezo strainer. Um, you'll find a, a USA-made machine that's really cool, very old-timey, you know, homestead piece of equipment. I've got one. 
what it does is it makes short work of removing seeds and skins, things like that from tomatoes, all types of berries. There's different, um, what do you call it? Different strainer sizes that, uh, attach to this thing. So get a squeezo strainer. Now, a couple of ideas for using blackberries. Um, blackberry syrup is awesome thing to make. And what you do is make first a simple syrup, which is a 50, 50 ratio of water to sugar. Put it on the stove. Just make sure the sugar is completely incorporated. Now you've got a great sweetening tool, simple syrup. You can use it in margaritas, by the way. So now that you've got a simple syrup, you're going to take your blackberry juice after you, after you have, um, strained out the seeds. And for those of you that don't have the squeezo strainer, you can take your blackberries or raspberries, whatever, put them in a, uh, saucepan on the stove, bring them up to a boil, take a old timey potato masher, you know, bash them down, uh, let it reduce a little bit, turn it off and put it through a, a, a strainer that, you know, with a fine mesh. And then the resulting stuff is this kind of blackberry juice. Once you have that, you can make blackberry syrup. Um, take that juice and reduce it. Now, there's going to be quite a bit of liquid. You want to reduce it down, you know, maybe by 50%. Just watch it. it. It totally depends on what type of blackberries you have, how much sugar is in them, how ripe they were, whatever. But just continue to reduce them down until they start to thicken a little bit. And then you want to cool it off, and then you're going to sweeten that up with your simple syrup. Put in a pinch of salt, and you have a blackberry syrup. Unbelievable stuff on top of waffles, pancakes, and in particular, blackberry French toast. And if you want to uh, feel like you're at IHOP, you can put a bunch of whipped cream on top. Next up would be blackberry vinaigrette. Um, we all remember the trend of raspberry vinaigrette. Everywhere was raspberry vinaigrette. You can make a blackberry vinaigrette, which is awesome to use. It's great on grilled chicken as well. Um, blackberry vinaigrette is another thing. Uh, what about storing them? How about making uh, blackberries that are individually quick frozen or IQF? The way things are IQF'd, take sheet pans. If you have um, racks that fit in the sheet pans, even better. Um, if you don't have them, I would advise buying them. But you take your blackberries uh, or blueberries, what have what have you, you Rinse them in cold water and then place them on top of the rack on the sheet pan. And uh, you want space between them. They can't be on top of each other. So there's got to be space. Before you put them in the freezer, mist them with a, a spray bottle of water. Put them in the freezer. And once they freeze, you will have individually quick frozen blackberries. Then you can take those and put them in the bag and, a, you know, a couple freezer bags and put them in there. And then when you want some, you can reach in and take them and they'll stay you know, somewhat individual. If you just put a bunch of um, cleaned blackberries together in a bag, you're just going to get a giant uh, blackberry ice cube. You don't want to do that. Um, next up, you can do blackberry steak sauce with. So it's blackberry that juice with um, red wine. It is unbelievable uh, on steak or even grilled buffalo. You name it, it's it's really cool. And, and some of these recipes, folks, I am committed to um, place on my website. So those of you that are hearing this and, and want more, I only have so much time here, I will be expanding and putting them onto the website. You can always email me, Keith at HarvestEating.com, for any of these recipes. But the one thing I wanted to feature is a blackberry porter gastrique. Now, gastrique is an old-time French sauce. This is how you make it. Go on. Your stove top with a sauce pot with pretty deep straight sides, half cup of sugar, two tablespoons of water. Now, 
take a whisk and just slowly combine that. The sugar is going to melt, and after a few minutes, it's going to start to bubble. As it gets hotter and hotter, it will start to caramelize. You'll start to see some amber color. Now, you don't want to take it too dark, but you definitely want to see a distinct amber color. Once you reach that point, take it off the heat and then pour a half a cup of red wine vinegar into that mixture. Now, you want a big, tall sauce pot because that's going to expand quite a bit. You don't want that sugar solution coming over because that can really burn you. So once you've incorporated the vinegar, the sugar may start to solidify a bit. Just put it back on the heat, start to stir it around. Um, then you're going to put in maybe three tablespoons of a good dark porter beer, which is awesome. So these flavors together are amazing. Then you're going to put in a good handful of fresh thyme, throw it right in there. Um, if you want to have it a little spicy, you can put in uh, a cayenne pepper or a jalapeno pepper. Then you're going to put in a couple, two to three tablespoons of your reduced blackberry liquid, and now a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper. Now you've got a blackberry gastrique, which is an unbelievable thing. I would also throw some fresh whole blackberries in at the end. Now, the best way to serve this, Jack, is with those ducks. Some of them will be culled at some point and uh, making seared, crispy seared duck breast with a blackberry porter gastrique. Mm-mm. Awesome stuff. You, you know how to do that. You score your the skin on your duck breast, put it in a good heavy skillet with some duck fat, sear it really well, um, turn it over, put it in the oven, cook it to... You know, about medium, take it out, slice it, arrange those fanned out pieces of duck breast on the plate, some of this um, blackberry porter gastrique, and you are living large, as they say. So with that, um, I hope I've given you a few ideas how to use your blackberries. Uh, for value-added products, I would definitely um, talk about having some jam out on, you know, to your duck, uh, duck egg customers. The blackberry vinaigrette is something that you could bottle. And possibly sell. And I also have a, a great, unbelievable blackberry barbecue sauce, which uh, I'm going to put that in the recipe list over at Harvest Eating. So, folks, those will start to appear in the coming days. Hopefully, I've inspired you to uh, use up those blackberries. And uh, as always, I want to thank the TSP community for supporting Harvest Eating. Do head on over to HarvestEating.com and check out my podcast. You can also subscribe in iTunes, and I appreciate everybody's support. Have a great weekend. Take care. Blackberry barbecue sauce on smoked pork a la Spirico. That is going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. Um, anyway, uh, guys, I hope you appreciated the, the new format to the Friday show with the Expert Council. I have been mulling this idea over for a long time, and it was one of those things that like getting getting the, the system in place to do it was actually more work than doing it, and I think this actually works really well. Again, if you have an, a, a question for the expert counsel, you can still call them in, but it, you'll more likely get into a lined-up queue and get your question answered at some point if you try the new format, because this works really well, I have found, this week for both sides, both for me and for the council members. Send the question in text, put TSP expert uh, panel question or TSP, TSPC expert question or anything like that. Just TSPC and expert in there, and I'll know what it is. Try to make your question one to two sentences. Hit the return key a few times and provide details if you think they're necessary. I'll try to drill the questions down to being very specific and usefully to useful to the general audience, not just 
the uh, the person asking the question. I try not to take too many questions that are too user-specific, individual-specific, or if they are, I try to broaden them out, and, and I may reformat your question a little bit to make it a little bit more broad so that more than just one person benefits from hearing answers like we had today. But, uh, guys, this was... This was a fun show, and I learned a lot today. Uh, hopefully, we've been able to teach you guys a lot, too. Please keep your questions coming, and, and please remember why we do what we do here at the Survival Podcast. Uh, this isn't just something I do so I can work from home. This is something I do because I'm passionate uh, beyond, beyond words. Uh, for self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. Those are the most important things in the world to me. Uh, the freedom of individuals to live uh, by a, a life of their own choosing. Uh, the, the society that we live in has made that difficult. They have made that very, very difficult, but it's possible. And the more you know and the more you produce for yourself and the better you manage and design your life, the more you can have of that freedom. Uh, we live in a society today where we've been convinced that we will be happier by having more stuff. I know the human mind doesn't actually function that way in the end. It's a never-ending cycle. It's the completion of one rat maze only to find yourself at the beginning of another one. And eventually it's a cycle that leads to misery, stress, early death, or if nothing else, the, the, the slavery of massive debt. That is the only place that that lifestyle will ever lead anybody. Even those that become very wealthy as far as income levels still end up having a dramatic small amount of, of true wealth in the end of their lives. Um, but people that actually start building an intrinsic wealth into their lives, that start living like our grandparents did and building wealth into their property, wealth that is hard to quantify, wealth that is hard to tax, um, I don't think my tax assessor knows how to tax 100 blackberry plants. I really don't. Like how to put that into the property assessment value. That's, that's not how, you know, tax code works for the, the, for Tarrant County. It doesn't work that way. Um, that's the way that you can start to build an intrinsic wealth into your life. And as you heard from Keith Snow, something stupid like a hundred Blackberry prints, which, which cost me 200 bucks, by the way. That's, that's a total investment, $200. Um, has the potential to produce massive amounts of value-added product. Um, four or five years from now, I might have someone on this property just doing a small element partnership here once we have enough production because I don't want to do it. And I know my wife's only going to want to do so much. And that allows me to actually help somebody to build a business, have a, a value-add, build a community. Um, and that's just one thing. That's why we do this, because liberty and freedom are precious enough that we should not be waiting for them to be handed to us or returned to us or be grateful for how much we're allowed to have and say, oh, since we have more than another country, it's good, because that's not good enough. Freedom and liberty are precious enough that not only should we fight for them, but we should seize them, we should take them, we should demand them by any means necessary of altering our lives to make sure that we can have as much freedom to decide how we live as possible. That's what this is really all about. Yes, we prepare for disasters and emergencies, but we're living in the middle of a disaster right now. A disaster that has impacted human liberty on a scale that is is undeniable. We now have the government trying to mess with people making freaking soap in their house. Make soap. You know what? If you've been thinking about making soap, start doing it right now. 
this weekend. Make that your project. If that's something you've been kicking around, go do it. So that you'll take it personally when they talk about taking it away from you. And don't let them. Some of these things are so ridiculous, it's time that we start turning to our government and say, I don't think we're going to let you do that. We're not going to write you letters and beg you not to. We're going to tell you no. We're going to fight back by doing a peaceful insurrection. Remember, the revolution is you, but the time for simple revolution has passed. A revolution is the transfer of power from one group of leaders to another. An insurrection is the seizing of power from those with it by those whom they have wielded power over. It is time for you and I to seize their power. And that means freeing ourselves economically in regards to food, in regards to health, in regards to energy. That's what it's all about. Indeed, have a great weekend. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.